Remember, Pastor mentioned that the newcomers class, if you want to take that, that's across the hall in room two. For those who are new to our church and want to learn about the church, newcomers class is meeting now in adult classroom two across the hall. While they're coming in, I want to talk a little bit about a problem I've had recently. And I'm a little upset about it. I think I have become the victim of age discrimination. Age discrimination. I just had a birthday in June. And as I'm getting older, I'm finding that people are treating me differently. I never expected this, but it's happening to me. Age discrimination. That's not what we're talking about today, but I know you want to hear this story. (laughs) So I want to relay that while the folks are coming in. Get your notes. Get a copy of the notes. Come in. I have here an iPhone, an Apple iPhone. And one of the features it has on it is called Apple Pay. Apple Pay. You uh, put your credit card number in to the phone, and then you can use the phone to pay for things at various locations, various retail retail establishments. This uh, iPhone has a little circle there, and it has what's called a touch ID. So it recognizes your fingerprint. So if I press on this, it recognizes my fingerprint, it unlocks the phone. But also, if I press on this, I can make transactions. So when you go to uh, various places like uh, McDonald's has this and Walgreens and Myers has this, if you go there and you go and where you insert your credit card, the little credit card place there, instead of inserting your credit card, if you have Apple Pay, you just hold your phone up to that and touch your thumb. I just touch my thumb and it pays for it. I don't have to get my credit card number out or any credit card out. So, a few weeks ago, I'm at a retail establishment at Walgreens, and so I, uh, I'm getting up, to, I get my stuff, and I'm getting ready to pay, and I get my iPhone out, and I, I get up there, and I put my thumb up there, and I zip, pay for the thing, and the young lady behind the counter says, you know, it's wonderful that a man of your age knows how to use that sort of thing. <laughs> So yesterday, I go to the prayer breakfast, and I stop, I'm stopping by Myers. I need to get some milk, and I want to get some Cokes. And they have Cokes on sale, 10 for $10, and the 11th one is free. 10 for 10, 11th one is free. But they only have seven of this weird stuff we drink, this diet, caffeine-free. You know, it's just, just colored water, but we pay a lot of money for it. They only have seven of these. So I get the seven, I get the milk, I go up to the checkout counter. There's a lady right there kind of in front of me, and she's finishing up. But we get stalled because she has a bottle slip, 20-cent bottle slip, that she got at another Myers store. And the cashier can't handle that. Because it's from another Myers store, she's got to get a supervisor to come and okay that. So we're waiting there. She calls, she calls. It's just like the eternity, you know, we're waiting to get a supervisor over there. 
So I'm, I got my drinks up there, my seven drinks. You know, and I'm, I'm just looking at the drinks. And she says to me, she says, you know, you can get uh, 10 for 10 and the 11th one's free. And I say, I kind of just nod, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I can see she's looking at me. <laughs> so she gets a little closer and she speaks up. She says, you know, you can get... <laughs> You can get 10 for 10 and the 11 one's free. And I sort of say, I, I think I said a little louder, yeah, no, you know, but I, and she, she gets a little, she gets a little closer and a little louder. You know, you can get 10 for 10. So, so anyway, I say, no, I got, they only got seven. They only got seven of what I need. So I check my, get my stuff checked out. I get my phone out. Because Myers has got Apple Pay. I get my thumb up there, you know, to put on the thing, but it won't, it just won't work for some reason. And there's another lady over here beside me. And, uh, I'm trying to get this, and she says, uh, let me help you with that. <laughs> and I, and I, I'm just saying, well, it won't, it won't work, you know, I know it, you know, it just for some reason, I know how, I know how to work this. She says, I know a lot of people like you who just can't make this work. Just... So, <laughs> I may do some crazy things today here today because I'm getting a little older here. And so, we're looking today at the topic here. I've entitled it, uh, Why Does Community Bible Church Use the New International Version? Let me also mention that after the session, if some of you men could stay around, we're going to set up some tables for the baptism supper. So if you can stick around after we finish, uh, Travis Ma will be in and we'll set up some tables and chairs for that. Why does Community Bible Church use the New International Version? <clears throat> or why would any church, ours or others, use the New International Version? Let me start with just a little history of the New International Version. Um, the origin goes back to the 1950s. It goes back to a Seattle businessman by the name of Howard Long. He was a businessman. He traveled along. He witnessed to people. He wanted to try to get other businessmen saved. And he was frustrated with the archaic language of the King James. By archaic, I mean old. You know, the older language. King James translated 1611. English has changed drastically over those Four or five hundred years now, so um, four hundred years now. So uh, he he was he came up with the idea we need a new translation. So he got his pastor interested in it, Peter de Young. Uh, he was a member of the Christian Reformed Church, which is a Dutch Reformed denomination out of Grand Rapids, the Christian Reformed Church. So he takes it to his pastor to the consist. They take it up to the synod. It's a long process, and finally they get approval. Yeah, let's do this new translation, 1958. At the same time, another group called the National Association of Evangelicals was also looking at this. They were concerned about the archaic nature of the King James, and they were concerned, and they said, we need a new Bible translation. So they joined hands, the Christian Reformed Church, the National Association of Evangelicals. They met together uh, in Grand Rapids in 1961 and 65. They assembled a group of biblical scholars to oversee 
this process of translation, uh, and they set out an agenda. They wanted, I quote here, a contemporary English translation of the Bible, something in contemporary modern English, uh, not the older King James kind of English. So they set up a committee of, on Bible translation, CBT, Committee on Bible Translation, a committee composed of 15 scholars. And these 15 scholars were selected to oversee the translation of what we call the New International Version. Now, this Committee on Bible Translation is still around. It, it still meets. It's been going on for all these years. It meets every summer. It just met in London. So they meet and consider changes, possible changes in the future, possible improvements. The Committee on Bible Translation. The uh, Committee on Bible Translation, the 15, did not do all the work. They chose other biblical scholars, over a 100, to actually translate various books. They would have two or three people work on Genesis, two or three people work on Exodus. Then they would come together as a team. And then finally, the final decisions were made by the committee. So it was a long process, a long committee process to come up with the uh, translation. Now, the, the, uh, most of the money to finance this <clears throat> came from a Bible society called the New York Bible Society. You've probably heard of the American Bible Society. There's an, there's an American Bible Society, but states over the years had their own individual Bible societies. New York had one, New York Bible Society. And the New York Bible Society said, we'll help sponsor this. The translators don't get any great amount of money. They get per diem. They get paid for when they're staying in hotels and when they're meeting together, they get paid for that. But they really don't get much, but it still takes a lot of money. This is the time before computers, things are handwritten, they're typing, there's charges and all that. The uh, New York Bible Society puts up, pledges some initial money. Um... But the costs begin to escalate, and the New York Bible Society actually sells their building in Manhattan, which was valuable property, moves to New Jersey to raise money. Then they move to Colorado, and they change their name to the International Bible Society because they had decided to call the translation the New International Version. International means international English. So the idea was we don't want a translation that just uses American idioms only. We want something that's more universal for Britain, other English-speaking countries was the idea, new international version. And so uh, the New York Bible Society moves to Colorado, changes its name to the International Bible Society in 1988. In, 19, in 2009, they changed the name again to Biblica. So now they're called Biblica. Well, they still needed money, and Zondervan stepped in, and they provided a lot of money. The, the NIV cost over a million dollars to produce, well, over a million. And they provided money based upon the fact that they would have royalties in the future for selling uh, the translation and so forth. They stepped in in 1971, brought financing. And they also received the rights to print the NIV in the United States of America. The New Testament was published first in 1973. That's the way all new Bible translations are done generally. You form committees to work on the Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament is a lot longer. So the NIV, uh, New Testament, was done first. It was published in 73. 
That was followed by the entire Bible in 1978. That's the first edition that I used, that I got my hands on, was the 1978 edition. It was revised in 1984, and the, the edition we use mostly in our church here is the 2011 edition. So if you look at that chart there, you've got the Committee on Bible Translation. They're a continuing group of Bible scholars who are responsible for the translation, overseeing the translation. You've got Biblica, which holds the copyright. They are the, you might say, they're the publishers. They hold the copyright to the NIV. And Zondervan, who in the United States has the exclusive rights to print the New International Version. Let's look at the second page. Why doesn't, why does uh, CBC use a modern version of the Bible? Or we might say, you know, why don't we use the King James Version? Why don't we use the King James Version? Because for most of American history, churches have used the King James Version. Why don't we use, why don't other churches use the King James Version? Let's talk a little bit about the history of the King James, and we'll see how that works. The King James, of course, was produced in 1611. Now, it was not the first English Bible. Uh, the first first uh, translation into English of any kind was done around the year 600 or 700, no complete Bible, but 600 or 700, there's samples of people trying to translate into Old English. Uh, in 1380, the first complete English Bible was produced, the Wycliffe Bible, produced by John Wycliffe. But that was a translation of the Latin Bible. The Latin Bible was the Bible that was used in Western Europe up until about 1500. Latin was the universal language of scholarship. So in 1380, John Wycliffe produced a translation of the Bible into English. He didn't know Greek. He didn't know Hebrew. He translated from the Latin Vulgate. This is a handwritten Bible, 1380, no printing press. Very few copies of it. And the average person wouldn't have one. Most people couldn't read anyway. This is mostly for church people, churchmen, clergy, that kind of thing. But the first translation from the original Greek and Hebrew into English was done by William Tyndall. He produced the New Testament in 1526. 1526. Um, the first Greek New Testament had been produced in 1516, so that was available. The Hebrew Old Testament was available. Tyndall was a scholar, and he started working on the New Testament. Now, at this time, England was a Catholic country. It was illegal to produce an English Bible. It was illegal to translate the Bible into the common language of people throughout Europe, not just England, but anywhere. The Roman Catholic Church forbade that. But Tyndall believed, you know, he was a saved man. He wanted to get the Word of God out to people. It's hard to know how many people could read in 1526. If you look at the, look at the, the articles on this, they'll say 10%, 20%, some say 30, 40. It's clearly most people couldn't read, but a lot of people could. 
And so he wanted to get this Bible out to as many people as he could. But he had to do his work in Europe because Henry VIII was persecuting uh, Lutherans, Protestants, anybody who printed the Bible in the common languages. William Tyndall eventually got burned at the stake for what he did. But eventually then Henry VIII broke from the Roman Catholic Church in 1535 and he began to allow, England began to allow translations of the Bible into English. 1535, an associate of William Tyndall produced the first complete Bible called the Coverdale's Bible. Tyndall worked on the New Testament. He did some of the Old Testament, but he's burned at the stake before he complete the Old Testament. Coverdale, one of his associates, did a complete Bible, 1535. This is a revision of Tyndall's work, mostly Tyndall. Another associate, associate by the name of John Rogers, who used the pen name Matthew, produced a Bible in 1537. And then finally, in 1539, the Church of England itself authorized an a English Bible. The first authorized English Bible in the Church of England in 1539, called the Great Bible. Well, some Protestants in, who were exiled from England when Mary came to the throne and, and removed the Church of England and restored the Roman Catholic Church, they produced what's called the Geneva Bible in 1560. They produced this in Geneva, Switzerland under John Calvin. And eventually, Elizabeth comes to the throne, and they dedicate this to Queen Elizabeth, and she comes to the throne and they're able to print the Geneva Bible back in England again. And the Geneva Bible becomes the most popular Bible of its day. Extremely popular. Uh, the, the, the Geneva Bible came in smaller editions, more affordable. And most evangelical Christians used the Geneva Bible during that time. When the Puritans came over, 1620, they brought with them a copy of the Geneva Bible. That's the only Bible they would allow on the Mayflower. They called the King James a fond thing vainly invented. They were not happy about the Bible of kings, King James, and that sort of thing. So this became the most popular Bible. The Church of England came out with a second authorized Bible called the Bishop's Bible, 1568, because the Geneva was so popular. Then finally, in 1611, they came out with the King James Version. Now, the King James Version was superior to all these previous Bibles. It's a revision of all these Bibles. They, it takes the best from all these Bibles. It took the best from the Geneva Bible. But it took about 50 years for the King James to become the dominant Bible. So even though it came out in 1611, most people were still using the Geneva Bible. I mentioned the Pilgrim Fathers, 1620. But eventually, the King James, being the superior Bible won the day. And from 1650, you know, till the 1900s, for over 300 years, it's the dominant Bible in all the English-speaking world. It's the best-selling Bible until 1986. In 1986, for the first time in over 300 years, a Bible became more popular than the King James Version and that was the NIV, the New International Version. I'm basing this upon sales, Bible sales. And so the New International Version, since 1986, has outsold the King James every year. Still is the most popular selling 
Bible. The King James itself went through a number of revisions. I've listed them there. 1611, 1612. There were actually two versions in 1611. 1612, 1613, 1629 was the first major revision. 1638, the second major revision. 1762, the third. And 1769, the fourth. So the King James Version that we use today, that you buy in your Christian bookstore, is the 1769 revision by Dr. Benjamin Blaney. That's the version. So even though some folks say, I use the 1611 King James, they're not. They're using the 1769 edition. I say there are over 2,000 differences, mostly minor differences, but differences between the 1611 King James and the modern. And I've listed some of those, just a few, on page 3 to just give you a little sample of how a 1611 edition differs from a current King James Version. They're not major differences, but they are differences nonetheless. So you can see Genesis 39, 16, until her Lord came home, until his Lord came home. The last one, 1 John 5, 12, he that hath the Son... He that hath not the Son hath not life. The current King James says, He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. So there are differences, not major differences, but still differences between the 1611 and the current 1769, which people use when they use the King James. Well, since uh, 1769, the King James has been revised numerous times also. Now, it's it's not... It's, it's not uh, it's not to call the King James. They, they revise it and give it a new name. So we're using the 1769 King James, as you see on the chart there on the bottom of page 3. In 1881, the Church of England decided to revise the King James. In England, the Church of England holds the copyright. The King James is copyrighted in England. You just can't go and print a, bio, print a King James in England. It's copyrighted. Um... No, no King James was printed in America until after the Revolutionary War because American printers couldn't print it. They didn't have the copyright for it. After they broke from England, then they just, <laughs> they printed all they wanted. <laughs> and, you know, after 1882. But in 1881, the Church of England decides we need to revise the King James again. They did. They called it the Revised Revision of 1881. And it replaced the King James in the pulpits of Anglican churches in England. They used the revised version of 1881. Now, some Americans had worked on that translation. They had been invited to help. And they didn't like the revised version because it had a lot of British English, a lot of British expressions. So they came out in 1901 with their own American version called the American Standard Version, ASV. American Standard Version of 1901. And they um, produced that. This was, again, the King James is still the most popular. Most people in the churches don't know anything about this. The Presbyterian Church adopted this as their version. So if you were in a Presbyterian Church in 1920, there's a good chance the pastor would have been speaking from the American Standard Version, very possibly. The American Standard Version was revised again in 1946. And again, it was revised in 2001 
and call the English Standard Version. Now, when I say revision, uh, it doesn't mean that these people don't look back at the original. They're always looking back at the original Greek and Hebrew, but they start with the previous English version as the basis and modify it. So the ESV, English Standard Version, which is a very popular Bible today, uh, that is based on the RSV, which is based on the ASV, which is based on the RV, which is based on the King James. They, it's, there is a lineage there, even though they, they always go back to the original Greek and Hebrew and so forth. The ESV was produced in 2001. There was a revision in 2007 and another in 2011. <clears throat> so the latest revision of the ESV is 2011. You can see the New American Standard Bible there. That was a revision of the ASV of 1901. A lot of Americans like that. A lot of American scholars like that. But they revised it in 1963 and produced what's called the New American Standard Bible. I used to be a member of Inner City Baptist Church. They used the New American Standard Bible. Now, it was revised in 1995. So the current edition is the 1995 edition. And they're revising it again. First, they said 2017. Then they said 2018. The latest is maybe 2019, so we'll see. But they're revising. They're working on it. So we'll see another revision of the New American Standard Bible. The New King James was produced in 1979. Now, it's a revision of the King James 1769. I just draw a line for the NIV because the NIV did not start with the previous version. The NIV was just a fresh... They didn't. It's not. I'm not saying they didn't look at other translations. They did. But they didn't start as a base with another English translation. They just translated fresh, tried to translate fresh and new when they translated. Let's look at page four. Why have many churches replaced the King James Version with another version? So the King James Version is very popular. I grew up the King James, memorized all those verses in the King James. And now I'm too old. I can't memorize. Remember the old age thing, you know. Can't. So, so uh, why have churches replaced the King James? There are some minor reasons, and there is a major reason. Now, when I say minor reasons, I'm talking about motivation here. I'm not talking about importance. These minor reasons for switching are important reasons. I think very important. But they're not the motivation. They're not the reason why. The big reason is, we'll see on page three. So what are some minor reasons? Well, the availability of more accurate, of a more accurate Greek text. As I say, when the King James translate was translated, there were very few copies of the Greek New Testament that had been discovered. Today we have about 5,800 plus copies or parts of copies. We don't have complete copies. Mostly they're parts. Paul's epistles or gospels or something, you know. Just parts of the New Testament. But 5,800 plus. Uh, when the King James was translated, it was translated from what's called the Textus Receptus. In 1516, a Roman Catholic fellow named Erasmus produced the first printed Greek New Testament and published it in 1516. And eventually that text began to be used over time and it gradually got the name of received text. It's the text received by all. It's the most used Greek text. 
But it was based on, as I say, eight here, a very small number of Greek manuscripts because they didn't have many in Western Europe. Now, Greek was the universal language of the day, in Paul's day. When he wrote to the church at Rome, he wrote in Greek. And so if you went to Rome, you could speak Latin or you could speak Greek. Most of the slaves, most of the people, a lot of people just spoke Greek, but Latin was the official language. Eventually, Latin won out. And by 400, 500, there's no Greek spoken in the Western world. It's all Latin, the Latin Bible. So... In 1516, Erasmus produces his Greek New Testament. You just can't find any Greek new manus- Greek manuscripts. There are no Greek manuscripts around hardly. Greek is just being revived. The study of ancient languages is just being revived in Western Europe. So he has a very few manuscripts to work with. The Textus Receptus is the name we use to call the printed text that he produced and was modified. The, new, the King James and the New King James are based on that. Modern versions like the NIV, New American Standard Bible, NIV, almost all modern versions, every modern version pretty much, except for the New King James, looks at all these manuscripts. It's based on what's called eclectic. Eclectic means to choose from among, choose the best from among the group. And so uh, the idea is let's get the Greek text as close to the original as we can by looking at all these manuscripts that's what the ESV, New American NIV are doing. Well, that causes some differences. Now, they're important differences in many cases, but they're not doctrinal differences. They don't result in a different doctrine. People are not Presbyterians because they have a different Bible. People are not even Roman Catholics because they have a different Bible. People are not Jehovah's Witnesses because they have a different Bible, really, ultimately. It's really how you interpret that Bible that counts. So we're not talking about major doctrinal difference or anything like that. And I mentioned here that if you look at the churches, our churches, Community Bible Church's statement of faith, it has a long statement of faith, various doctrines, the doctrine of God, doctrine of Scripture, doctrine of salvation. It has 275 Bible verses to support the doctrine, the teaching. It has 275. If you look at those 275 verses in the King James, the New King James, the NIV, the New you'll come up to the same doctrine, you see. You don't get a different doctrine, doctrinal teaching, by using a different version. Now, you get some different interpretations on individual verses and meaning, certainly. But I think it's possible, most think it's possible, to improve upon the text behind the King James Version. So I've given an example here, a couple examples. Now, if, it's, if, if, if this is your nap time, go ahead and take it. <clears throat> And we'll get back to you in just a few minutes here. But So here's an example. Revelation 20.12, the King James says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. Stand before God. The printed Greek text used by the King James translators, the Texas Receptus, was based on only one Greek manuscript in Revelation from the 11th century. Every other known manuscript of the book of Revelation has the word throne instead of God. So that's why the ESV, New American NIV, all read standing before the throne. So instead of saying standing before God, it says standing before the throne. That's not a great difference, but it's different, you know, different word. So if we want to be as accurate as we can, 
as close as we can to the original, then you're going to have standing before the throne. Another example is 1 John 3, 1, where the King James reads, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed on us, that we should be called the sons of God. But the NIV reads, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. The NIV, New American Standard, ESV, add the phrase, and that is what we are, reflecting the fact that we now possess very old manuscripts which add those words at this point in the text. So the best evidence suggests that John actually wrote these words, and that is what we are, but they accidentally dropped out in the copying of the manuscripts, apparently accidentally. And all these words don't ultimately change the meaning of 1 John, We want to be as accurate as we can, and so modern translations are going to add those words in because the older manuscripts all have those words. So I say that's an important reason, but it's not the reason that most people, most average Christians have switched to the NIV or some modern translation. It's not really the reason most churches, but it's an important reason. It's it's a good reason. A better understanding of the Greek New Testament. This one's hard to explain. Our King James-only friends will say, it's impossible to produce a better translation than the King James because they had the most brilliant men of the day translating, and there's been nobody like them. That's nonsense. They had the most brilliant men of the day, but their knowledge of Greek was not that good. (laughs) Remember, Greek had just come back into Western Europe. So these men were learning Greek, learning about Greek, We know more about Greek now than they did. I know more about Greek than my teachers knew. Not because I'm smarter, because there's been advances in Greek since I took Greek many, many years ago. Some of the things my teachers told me, we changed our minds about. We now know that was not exactly right. So we've learned things over time through discoveries and the study of Greek. And so... I give an example here about trying to give a simple example. Take the word the, for instance. The King James translators didn't really understand how the word the functions in Greek. They were taking it pretty much like it functioned in English. They failed to grasp, especially when the Greek does not have the word the. For instance, John 4.24. Jesus is talking in John 4 to the Samaritan woman. And the statement says, God is a spirit. Remember, Jesus says, God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, the the Greek text has no article there. So the King James put in, has no word the, so it put in an A. God is a spirit. But now we know that when that article is not present sometimes, often the noun is what's called qualitative. It expresses a quality. It talks about the essence or nature. So, a modern translation is going to say, the ESV, the NIV, the New American Standard, they, they say God is spirit. So it's not saying God is a spirit and there are other spirits. They're saying God as to his nature is spirit. He's not material. Now, Jesus took upon himself humanity, but God, the Father and the Son, and their essence are spirit. They're not material beings. God is spirit. 
That's, that's a kind of, that was a failure to understand the, how the Greek article really works in the New Testament. But that's just what happens over time. We learned more and more about the Greek language, how it's used, and so forth. So translators today have better knowledge. Okay, those are, those are reasons. I think they're important reasons, but they're not the major reason that most people switch. The most reason is archaic language. That is the old language. Just like uh, we mentioned Howard Long, who was having trouble evangelizing his business friends, that's what most people run up against with the King James. You get a new believer who's not brought up in church, they're not familiar with the Bible. The King James seems a little old and archaic. I've listed some examples here for you. And Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke. You know, there's a lot of these like this. They're just old English, archaic, that we don't use anymore. On page 6, I mention 2 Corinthians 6, 11 and thir- through 13 in the King James Version. Here's how it reads. O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. Ye are not straightened in us, but ye are straightened in your own bowels. Now for a recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. What in the world does that mean? (laughs) Here's the NIV. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. So I don't really see a legitimate reason why someone should have to put up with that disadvantage of the archaic language which no one's going to understand without some explanation. Why should you put up with that if you're reading your Bible? Why not read in a modern English translation that you can understand generally what's being said? And there are excellent versions available. You don't have to use the NIV. There are other good Bibles, the New American Standard Bible, the uh, ESV. There's others that are in more contemporary English. Well, why why does CBC... Community Bible Church used the NIV instead of another modern version. As I say, A here, most modern versions use almost exclusively use the same Greek and Hebrew text. So the difference between the NIV, the New American Standard, the ESV, uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, or now called the Christian Standard Bible, it's not a question of the Greek or Hebrew text. They're using the same basic text that's agreed upon. The main difference is the theory of translation. It's possible, I say here, to classify translations based upon two theories, two theories of translation. One is word for word, a translation that seeks to reproduce the form of the Greek language into English. Now, no translation does this exactly. Compare the word order of John 3.16 in the original Greek. For God so love, so so for God so for God so I can't say it. For for love God, so so for love God the world, so that the Son, the only He gave in order that everyone believing in Him, not perish, but are left out, but have life, but have uh, but have life eternal. I even left out something there, but you can see the word order is different. 
So everybody's got to move the words around, make it, make, you know, change it. You can't go exactly word for word. But you can try. You can try to keep it as close to the original word order as you can. The other is meaning for meaning, a translation that seeks to reproduce primarily the meaning of the Greek language into English. You're not so concerned about the word order. You're trying to find out what is the meaning in the original. Let's put it exactly the same as we can into English. So you could put translations on a scale, word for word, meaning for meaning, and, and you can even have free, like the Living Bible I've got over there. That's very free, very paraphrastic. You can see the New American Standard is probably the most literal. King James, New King James, ESV, NIV is more towards meaning for meaning. The New Living Translation is even more meaning for meaning and so forth. So it's on a continuing scale there. Page 7. One way to illustrate the differences in theory of translation is to look at a particular verse in the ESV, New American Standard, and NIV. Notice Luke 9.44. ESV says, let these words sink into your ears. New American Standard, let these words sink into your ears. Now, we can understand that. I mean, I, can't, I think we can because the King James said, let these sayings sink down. So, But we don't normally say to people, hey, let these words sink into your ears. We might because we're familiar with the King James, but we normally don't talk. We normally say something like the NIV. Listen carefully to what I'm telling you. You know, we don't normally tell our children, listen, let this sink in. We usually say, listen, listen to what I'm saying. Listen carefully to what I'm saying. I'll say the New American Standard and ESV are strict, are not, are strictly literal equivalents of the Greek. The NIV is an attempt to take the meaning of the literal Greek and put it in a more modern English form that expresses the same meaning. Now, the difference between the ESV, the NIV, the New American Standard are, 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 they're not they're not that great all the time. Often, they're, often the translations are exactly the same. Look at John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the same in all the translations. So it's not, it's not always that much difference. Look at another example, Matthew 1.21. It shows how a word-for-word translation results in understandable English... But not quite natural English. That's what I'm drawing the distinction here between understandable and not quite natural. ESV, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. She will bear a son, New American Standard. You will call his name Jesus. NIV, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. So we don't normally say, hey, my wife bore a son last week. We, people would understand that. We, 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 we get it, but we don't talk that way normally. We talk about she, she gave birth to. That's the idea here. Mark 1.12. Behold, I send my messenger, the King James says, before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. ESV. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. That's exactly what the Greek says, before your face. But that's a Greek idiom. What does before your face mean? It means, I will send my messenger ahead of you. And if we're going to say, I'm going to send somebody ahead of you, we don't normally in English today say, I'm going to send before your face. You know, we don't, that's not the way we talk today. Second Samuel 18.25, the ESV has, The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. 
The New American Standard says, The watchman called and told the king, and the king said, If he's by himself, there is good news in his mouth. The NIV says, The watchman called out of the king and reported, The king said, If he is alone, he must have good news. So we get what the ESV and the New American Standard are saying, but we just don't normally say, He has good news in his mouth. We, we don't usually talk like that, so the NIV has put it into contemporary, what we would say, He has good news. So there, that's the crux of the debate. The big debate between the ESV, New American Standard, the literal, more literal people, and the more meaning for meaning, the NI people, is over this difference of how literal we should be. And there's tremendous difference. I have friends who are on one side and I'm on the other side. We, you know, good friends differ on this. <clears throat> um, the NIV supporters argue that since the God's word is meant to be understood, we should seek to convey the meaning of the original as best as can be determined, even if that meaning moves away from more, more literal translation. But others disagree. So there's disagreement there. But I, I just want to help you kind of see where the NIV is at in this process and why we chose to use it here because we're trying to reach people here and we're trying to reach a lot of people who, and, and increasingly, people have not been brought up in church. They're not familiar with King James English. They have no background in biblical things. And so uh, we, we need a translation that accurately conveys the original meaning, but in understandable, in modern English form. 